I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Suicide Squad. You gotta be kidding me. You're gonna risk the entire mission for a mental defective dress as a court jester. This is coming from a guy that wears a toilet seat on his head. We don't leave one of our own behind. Hopefully Harley's still alive. No funny business, Colonel. These are dangerous people. Team two is clear to go. Fire up. Three, two. What are you guys doing? You, we're, we're here to save you. You were gonna save me? It was a really good plan, too. Well, I can go back inside and you can still do it. That's patronizing. I'm so sorry. Harley Quinn. Bloodsport. You know the deal. Successfully complete the mission, you get 10 years off your sentence. Times are hard. You fail to follow my orders in any way. And I detonate the explosive device in the base of your skull. Can do the job so this is the famous Suicide Squad. Nom nom. Any questions? And? Yes. That is your hand. Very good. We're all gonna die. I hope so. Oh, for fuck's sake. What's the plan? How the hell am I supposed to know? You're the leader. You're supposed to be decisive. And I've decided that you should eat a big bag of dicks. If this whole beach was completely covered in dicks, and somebody said I'd eat every dick until the beach was clean for liberty, I would say no problem. Why would someone put penises all over the beach? Who knows why madmen do what they do? Don't you worry, eh? I'm gonna get you out of here alive. I'm going to get you out of here alive. Oh my god, we've got a freaking kaiju up in this shit! Uh huh. Okay, so this is just going to be me talking to Sharon. No guests this week. It's kind of a first impressions, but I don't think those impressions are going to necessarily change because the Suicide Squad is very much what's on the surface. And it's going to be full spoilers as well. So if you uh, haven't seen it, uh, either prepare to know everything that happens in it and have everything that happens in it contextualized uh, or see it first. Now... This is at 97% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. That is astonishingly good. That is an amazing score. And it's not out of just like five reviews. This is 123 reviews right now. It's just hitting all the critics in the right places uh, in a way they're like, you know what, this is really refreshing. We want this kind of film. I'm literally typing in The Suicide Squad clips on YouTube. And the third one down is a take called... Why the Suicide Squad is perfect, using the P word. So if you agree with that, that is film speak. It's 21 minutes long. It will tell you all of those reasons. Now, I don't even know what the Suicide Squad being perfect means. It's a decent enough film. And you could call it an efficient, darkly humorous realization of a concept. Um, And it's a lot more coherent than... Suicide Squad from 2016, which got 26%. Ooh! 
Yikes. That's David Ayer's Yikes, film. Yikes, indeed. I had no idea it was that low. Critics did not like it. I think critics were already geared up for DC making a kind of a hash of it since uh, Batman v Superman was such a course correction itself. And Suicide Squad 2016 had a very troubled production being turned over to Trailer Park, the uh, trailer production company, to do their final edit of David Ayer's film, turned it into more of a Hot Topic commercial. And, you know, we, we did our show on that. And I think back at the time in 2016, the DC universe was more of a big deal. It was more of a case of, look, look what they're trying to do now up against Marvel. And it was like their Superman had been sort of brought to the fore and then killed. And their Batman had been brought forwards and he was really angry. And their Wonder Woman had been brought forwards. And then their, their second ones after that were the Suicide Squad. Now, over time, I've realized that Batman's villains in particular, but DC villains altogether, are a rich enough pool to draw from that you could make a really great film with them in it. Ultimately, I, I, I draw this from watching the Harley Quinn show, which is very funny and heartfelt, and it hides its heartfeltness uh, by just basically being disgusting and terrible most of the way through. It's got wit-quick humour doing that all the time, and it makes me laugh out loud. And we watched another episode just to uh, bring us back up to speed um, th this evening, because we haven't watched it for a while. We left off uh, so that Batman the Animated Series could have its full impact on us. This is King Shark. Howdy! Hacker extraordinaire and perhaps more pertinent social media maven. Uh, this giant, terrifying half-man, half-shark is a computer whiz? I don't like to brag, but he took me from eight social media followers to eight. Teen! Bravo! I called him to solve our nemesis problem. Mm, I'm guessing you're the one having trouble finding a nemesis. Well, we put the profile up and we're not getting any bites. Is that a shark joke? So it's very funny. <laughs> now, Scooch, let me take a look at that profile. Hmm. Okay, now here's your first problem. You're not using any of the right keywords. I'll hack into the mainframe and get your feature. How long is this going to take? There you go. Got your first match. Who the hell is Tommy tomorrow? He's got a personalized ray gun. He says he's looking for something casual, someone to fight on the weekend. I am not settling for Tommy tomorrow. I want a you're not going to find any A-listers on here. There's no Batman. Or we get Batman. Batman, you have fought him countless times, and every time you end up at Arkham. I know another way, and by the end of it, Bats will be our nemesis. I don't know. Unlikely. Yes, 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 yes. That 97% freshness has now gone down since the day I saw it to 91% freshness, but it's still extremely high, especially for a DC movie. Aquaman got 65%, and you know how much we like that. Editor's Amendment, despite doing amazingly in critical circles, this was actually the second lowest opening movie in the DCEU franchise after Wonder Woman 84, which opened during lockdown. This was for a number of reasons, some of which I may speculate on later. But it makes me sad, as I did want this movie to do well for Margot, for James, for any DC movie with some heart in it. Because Harley is not, particularly in Birds of Prey, Harley is not really a villain, is she? She's, I, I don't know if you'd necessarily even call her an anti-hero. She's a hero who breaks things. 
it's difficult to 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 really say who's a villain anymore. I mean, especially in the t- case of Suicide Squad, it's shades of dark grey on pitch black and charcoal. And uh, you get characters who behave like terrible, terrible people and inhuman. And then you get characters who have scruples. And the interesting side of things comes to the fore in when people are pushed to a line and when they draw that line. Uh, But it's notable that this is a comedy. And I didn't laugh. At all. I don't get any pleasure saying that I didn't particularly love this 97% fresh film that everyone else seems to adore. Um, I don't want to make history. I don't want to stick out. I'm not being obtuse. I went in going, yes, James Gunn directing. This is going to be great. And then I kind of just sat there and felt a little bit cold for a long time. And the funniest bit of it was the bit Maya had told us about with uh, Nathan Fillion's detachable kid. I I could spot Maya from a distance. I was like, ah, there she is. And that gave me a little bit of a glow. But I wasn't exactly laughing because I'd already seen the bit. And it was surrounded by everything else that it's surrounded by. Uh, But we need to give some context to this thing. Or at least um, I'll I'll read you some stuff about how this um, came together. The first one did big business. It was 746 million out of 175 relative to Birds of Prey's really not particularly fantastic yeah, box that's office. that's some multipliers that movie executives tend yeah. to like. Yeah. So it was like, even though it got panned, they were like, well, we can do a sequel and change stuff around. Mm. And um, David Ayer and Will Smith were set to return after filming Bright, a terrible movie uh, by, written by Max Landis. And then uh, Ayer said that uh, the first film was rated PG-13, but it kind of felt more like an R, so he was lobbying to make the second one an R. There were several spin-off films in development, including one of Will Smith's Deadshot and uh, Gotham City Sirens with Margot Robbie, planning to star as Harley Quinn, which became Birds of Prey. David Ayer was on to direct Gotham City Sirens. Wow. Good Lord. What a save. Yeah. My God. Imagine David Ayer's Birds of Prey. Good, good Lord. It doesn't bear thinking about. I'm I'm very glad things turned out the way they did. You know, ultimately, even if I didn't particularly love The Suicide Squad, we got Birds of Prey. Warner Brothers was searching for a new director. They were courting Mel Gibson mid-February 2017. That's bonkers. Seriously, that's bonkers. Like, like oh yeah, Mel Gibson's triumphant return. Didn't you see The Beaver? To direct? To direct. Or to be in it? No, to direct. Ruben Fleischer was also courted. That's the guy who directed Zombieland. Hey! And Zombieland 2. But he also did Venom, which sort of ended up kind of like an original Suicide Squad as well. Kind of forced into being a PG-13. Structural and narrative mess. Remarkably popular all the same. Daniel Espinosa, Jonathan Levine. David S. Goya was also considered. Director of Blade Trinity. Wow. It's, It's almost like this couldn't have been good. Uh, Adam Kozad entered negotiations to write the film. Juan Colette Serra became the frontrunner to direct in early July, uh, director of The Shallows. He went off and did Jungle Cruise, which was playing in the next screen to me. (laughs) Featuring John Cena's arch nemesis, The Rock, currently shooting Black Adam. Zach Penn had pitched a new story for it. 
and Jared Leto was uh, going to reprise the role of Joker from the first film. The production was not going to begin until Will Smith had finished Aladdin, which was the live-action remake of Aladdin and Gemini Man. That was the film where Will Smith is hunted by a younger version of himself and there's a high frame rate, so everything looks far too real. Directed by Ang Lee, not a high point for anyone involved. Uh, Black Adam was reportedly the main villain in one of the scripts, and once again, I will believe that Black Adam exists when I see it on my cinema screen. And they were already moving ahead with Birds of Prey, a new Harley Quinn spin-off with a very similar story to the one written for Suicide Squad 2, and Joe Mangiglione's Deathstroke was going to be fighting Deadshot at some point in four or five different drafts of this Suicide Squad 2 film. Basically, it just kept getting rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. It is amazing that this final film is as tight and focused as it actually is. Because the way studio systems work, movies, when they finally emerge after this level of development purgatory, and I will maintain calling it development purgatory because hell is somewhere you go to suffer forever, apparently. Purgatory is in this kind of middle zone where you're just waiting. That's a better description for the kind of development that this film goes through. But usually by the end, they are a collection of ideas. Batman v Superman had loads of stuff in it that were kind of leftovers from scrapped Superman projects. That's why it felt very uneven. And to its credit, The Suicide Squad doesn't feel that level of uneven and that level of compromised and that level of a scrapbook often maintained to soothe the hurt feelings of various executives who want their ideas put up on screen, like the whole giant spider thing from John Peters and the polar bear thing from John Peters. After a while I'm done, he's just nodding, looking at me, nodding. He goes, you know why you and me are going to do a good job on Superman? And I said, why? He's gone, because you and me, we get Superman. You know why? I said, no. He said, because you and me, we're from the streets. <laughs> now, I, I grew up in suburban New Jersey. Never saw a black man until I was about 28. Like, I'm the farthest thing from the streets there are. You know, I, I grew up on a street. But not on the streets. And I'm looking at this guy going like, I'm from the suburbs, you're a hairdresser, neither of us are from the street. But I don't want to say that, because fuck it, I want the job. So I said, uh, who would you see playing Superman? And he said, I, if I had to cast it right now? I said, well, yeah. And he said, Sean Penn. And I was like, Spicoli? Because it was an interesting choice. And he's like, yeah, did you see, you see Dead Man Walking? Because that was out at the time. And I said, yeah. And he's going, well, look in his eyes in that movie. He's got the eyes of a violent, caged animal, of a fucking killer. And I was like, dude, it, it's Superman. He's like, I got some directives for you. If you're going to move forward on the process, some things I want you to do and don't in the script. He's going, three things. Okay. I said, all right. One, I don't want to see him in that suit. Two, I don't want to see him fly. And three, he's got to fight a giant spider in the third act. And I'm like, let's, let's go back to one. 
So what this boils down to is that this film, after all of these bad choices, uh, James Gunn got hired after Marvel fired him overnight over some astroturfing, mock-shocked responses from hard-right tweeters who hate the fact that James Gunn hated Trump and wanted to get James Gunn into trouble and weaken Disney. And Disney played right into their hands and kicked James Gunn off, a move which uh, effectively created a big block in their schedule that means that we probably should have had Guardians 3 this year, but we didn't. And instead we got The Suicide Squad, directed by James Gunn, but also written by James Gunn this year. It was shrewd of Warner Brothers to allow James Gunn to write it himself. That ensured that this wouldn't end up feeling like the end result of two dozen focus groups over five years. And this is a James Gunn film. However, James Gunn has a range. We've seen Guardians 1 and Guardians 2, but we've also seen Slither and Super. Remember Super? Mm -hmm. Honestly, this feels more like Super than it does like either Guardians film. So this is weird because clearly DC, Warner, want a Guardians of the Galaxy level success, don't they? Like, they forced the original Suicide Squad to be more like Guardians of the Galaxy, even going to the temerity of having Spirit in the Sky in their film with their fucking jukebox soundtrack for that first movie. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. They also want to do everything Marvel doesn't do, and they want to not do everything Marvel does do. So how do you get a Guardians of the Galaxy-style hit if you're not doing what Marvel do? It's almost like you're setting yourself up to fail. They're serving two masters, and they're two dogs pulling in different directions. If you look at the, uh, uh, the, the, the DCEU since Man of Steel, it's been pulling in these different directions over time. Like, you know, obviously Zack Snyder pulls it in one direction hard, and then when they course correct, they pull in the other direction hard. And sometimes they'll be doing that while Snyder's actually helming a film. That's the situation when it was at its simplest. That's when they were trying to retrofit a hopeful new aspect into a decidedly baleful collection of unfinished Justice League footage reels. Then Wonder Woman re-delivered us that lofty goddess, but with a warmth and a love that was unusual for the series so far. Shazam brought it right down to earth and into the home and made it very specifically appealing to children. And I'd say Aquaman was DC doing Marvel better than a lot of Marvel. But Birds of Prey is a different direction altogether. And The Suicide Squad pulls away from Birds of Prey. And you could say this was all the directors being allowed to do what they wanted, being given carte blanche and unlimited creative freedom by the executives. But if you look into all of these productions, almost all of these directors had their hands tied to some degree or didn't have final say over the edit. DC's output is a lot more studio-mandated than those that criticise Marvel for being too studio-mandated would really be comfortable examining. This is ultimately what comes about of saying, of having an ethos that's, we want to do the opposite of what the popular, beloved, very successful company are doing. But we also want to be popular, beloved, and successful. So what this actually is, is much closer to, as I would understand it, the Suicide Squad uh, comic from the 80s specifically. Like, uh, Gunn went back to its roots. Gunn specifically went back to the 1980s run of the comics by John Ostrander, who has a cameo in the film. And 
uh, here's the thing. I've never liked that comic. And I actually don't think with the tentpole established recurring elements of the series, I don't think I can really love any version of The Suicide Squad. Because it's basically a bunch of assholes being sent in to do black ops, and they don't want to be there, and they have bombs in their necks. Like I said, the, the interesting stuff comes from where each of them draws the line. I tend to find the supervillains and Gothamites that much more appealing when this version of Amanda Waller isn't sending them into a place to do black ops for her. I will mention that there was an animated movie we've seen in between uh, called Suicide Squad Hell to Pay. Do you remember that one? Uh, the big MacGuffin that everybody's chasing is a... Uh, from Dr. Fate, there was a Get Out of Hell free card. Ah, yes. And I just thought, that's the best fucking MacGuffin. Get out of hell free. And everyone involved in this animated film is a villain, and they all have their reasons for wanting to not go to hell. They're all sent to go and get this thing, but then it's like, who's going to betray the team to, to get this card for themselves? And um, there's a character called Bronze Tiger in there who's a straight-up decent good guy, uh, and yet who has fallen on the kind of bad luck that winds him up in this particular scenario. And for some reason, I expected that Idris Elba would be, maybe, maybe not necessarily the exact same character, but kind of along those lines. As it stands, the way the film works, it is fairly obvious that the character Idris Elba is playing is supposed to be Deadshot. Okay. His name is uh, Bloodsport, and he's really good with guns. He can hit things from very, very far away. He's like got fantastic aim. Uh, rather than just recasting Deadshot, uh, Gunn left the role open for Will Smith to come back to if he wanted, but basically kind of swapped in Mass Effect style Idris Elba's character. You lose one Krogan, we've got another one. Yeah. <sighs> the optics on that have their ups and downs. Idris Elba is always extremely watchable. Except in Cats. <laughs> he was still one of the best things yeah, in that. Yeah, I suppose so. It was just hypnotic watching him prance about with that fursuit on. Yes. You, uh, you play... What's the name of your character? Yeah. Uh, McCavity. McCavity, okay. McCavity. And the, here, we got a picture here. The internet is all buzz with, with the trailer which came out last week. And... And here you are as McCavity. You see me? Right there. Okay. And wow. is that all of that digital? Are you wearing any of the out? Is like a like a, a suit with ping pong balls on it and they <laughs> add all the fur? Or is there any prosthetic work the, involved? The, the fur coat is mine. I mean, yes. literally mine. And, uh, and the hat is real. The ears aren't real. The eyes are real. I had to wear these uh, incredible contact contacts. Contacts, yeah. But the rest is, you know, the wonderful magic of movie making. Can I tell you, though? When I was working on Hobbs and Shaw, just after that, I went to work on Cats. So I'm working with Dwayne and Jason, yeah. and they're like, as soon as they found out I was working on Cats, this was their favorite thing to do as I walked on set. We're doing this big fight scene. I'm walking in, looking all bravado, and they were like, hey, Idris, what are you doing next? <laughs> and the crew would be like, what are you doing next? I'm like, Cats. I don't know. Hobbs and Shaw, Fast and the Furious, Cats. It just... Now, I have never seen Cats. Um, can you tell me or explain to me what the plot of Cats is? 
Oh, wow. Oh, what a way to throw me under the bus there. Yes. No, it's a, it's a classic. It's a big musical. Sure, Andrew, Andrew Lord Webber. Right. And it is a, it's a, I guess it's about a, a cat. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Maybe how, more than one. How Maybe am I doing? How am I doing? Very okay. good. And it's one cat's journey towards what is essentially cat heaven. Okay. okay. And the idea is that we all, you know, we aspire to get towards cat heaven. There's this young cat and she gets sort of, you know, taken on this story about how to get to cat heaven or what you should do to get into cat heaven. How am I doing? Does anyone know what the story is? That is the best explanation of the plot of cats I have ever heard. I understand you went to cat school. Yes. Although he has the dubious honor of being in one of the worst Marvel films ever, not Thor The Dark World, Ghost Rider Spirits of Vengeance. That's the one where the only standout moment is Cage going absolutely bonkers. But yeah, now he's, uh, they mentioned that uh, he's in prison because he put Superman in the ICU with a, a kryptonite bullet. So I don't know if that was before or after he died and then got better, but one assumes that after Zack Snyder's Justice League, he went around doing Superman things, but at some point, Bloodsport shot him, which will help contribute to him being the downfall of the entire world because Batman was right about him being a monster all along. Um, it's also notable that 97% freshness for this movie, Birds of Prey got 79%. That means a lot fewer critics loved that than loved this. This is an example of uh, the critics and DC fans being in total agreement, as Black Widow sits at 80%. I never want to hear the assertion that Marvel pay off critics for good reviews again. For starters, it's patently untrue. But more worryingly, it comes from a place of anti-professional journalism, or even anti-semi-pro journalism. Because by its very nature, the accusation calls into question the integrity of the entire contemporary critical base. Because how can you trust anyone if everyone is paid off by the biggest corporation? It's fucking horseshit. But The Suicide Squad is structured around four acts, which felt strange to me. It uh, seemed like this would have been, considering the subject matter, best served to be a really lean, fast, mean, hundred-minute in-and-out dark comedy thriller. But instead, it's two hours 12 and stretched out to epic scale. And it has an obvious endpoint and then a whole other act after that. The first two acts were actually the bits that made me feel cold. In fact, technically, it's five acts. Prologue, the model for the Suicide Squad, is established. Act one, reintroduction and infiltration. Act two, heading deeper into the island and fighting back. Act 3, reaching their destination and uncovering the dark secrets. And Act 4, massive repercussions and a big choice. The third and fourth acts, I actually was like, oh, okay. Okay, I see what Gunn's doing with this. And they are the better parts of the film. For my purposes, I could have done without a lot of the middle section. I liked the characterization pretty much across the board. I wish there was a lot more of it. And I could have done with less people getting murdered, but ultimately it's a story about black ops and they're going in to kill a lot of people. This is the Dirty Dozen shot through a wry contemporary filter. It was obvious from the uh, trailers that they were filling this thing up. It is a massive roster of characters. And because it's the Suicide Squad, you expect a lot of them to be uh, very easily killed and disposable. 
And this is literally exactly what happens. Also, the the way it's positioned and the lingo, I was thinking, this reminds me a lot of Mystery Men. The, the gag is, well, these characters have got stupid powers and they wear stupid costumes. Mm. And that is definitely Squad One at the beginning. when you The first person you meet is Michael Rooker, who I read here, his name was Savant, and he's got this long white hair. I read here now he's uh, a computer hacker, and I'm like, why did they put him on this squad? He's like grim and miserable, and like, we start the film... Uh, back in Belrev, it starts with Folsom Prison Blues, and I was like, oh, cool, like, so we're going to get some really great music from James Gunn. He's excellent at making selections, and I wish that the music choices had been that memorable throughout. I- I'm actually having trouble remembering a lot of the other songs. Mm. So we're in the prologue, prior to Act One, and prior to the flashback, as they reintroduce the real team. This is uh, Michael Rooker's team, and uh, he gets uh, drafted in with Weasel, played by Sean Gunn, who is just a giant weasel. And uh, I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's fine, I suppose. I suppose he's like, uh, imagine if Rocket, but actually with the mind of a raccoon. And then someone mentions that he killed 27 children, and you're like, oh, fuck this guy. And, and that's the gag. He's just a weasel. And then they all jump into the water to crawl to shore uh, under d- the cover of darkness at the island of Corto Maltese, which is a DC fictional island. Weasel can't swim, so Weasel drowns immediately. And Amanda Waller gets asked, did anyone find out whether Weasel could swim or not? And she's like, ugh, bunch of fucking amateurs. Now, Amanda Waller... We always compared her to uh, Nick Fury. She's the one with the plan. And she's always been positioned kind of that way in uh, uh, DC stuff. She's kind of uh, stern and severe and working against the heroes often. But like you can always tell she's coming at this from a point of view of um, trying to keep some form of order. In this, she's not Nick Fury. And we'll come back to her later. I'm amazed, again, with the original Suicide Squad that they had to spend so fucking long setting up the idea. Do they do it in this within a minute or two? Hmm. Like, obviously, they assume you've seen the film. They just go, yeah, there's a bad guys with bombs and then next being forced to do Black Ops. They could have just said that in four seconds. Uh, But they spend that first act of the David Ayer version going... Imagine. And we're like, yeah, we imagine. Uh, Clearly, David Ayer, we have better imaginations than you. One of the uh, issues with that film is is the idea of, you know, well, what if Superman had gone rogue? Don't put Superman on the table with this one. Don't make it seem like these guys could take out Superman because they couldn't. Jenny Nicholson said it perfectly. You used the phrase suicide squad. What is that exactly? It's a team of bad guys we send out to fight crime. Why would you do this with bad guys? I don't know. Well, what makes them so special? They can shoot things and hit them with bats. This guy's a crocodile. So how would this be different than sending in a team of soldiers? These guys are bad guys. Oh, so like basically you're sending in bad guys so you don't have to risk innocent men's lives. No, there will be soldiers there too. Wait, what? About 50 of them. What are they doing? They're guarding the suicide squad. This guy's a boomerang. Wait, wait, so you're letting them out of jail. What's going to stop them from escaping? I'll inject tiny bombs into their necks that I'll control with an app. It's right here on my phone. Okay. Didn't you just take out a folder on the guy who's the best shot in the world? 
So, like, what if he can shoot you with a gun faster than you can kill him with an app? I don't know. And how is the guy who's good at shooting things different than just sending in a team of soldiers with guns anyway? He's really good at shooting things. If you're sending them on suicide missions and if it works, they're going back to jail anyway, then why wouldn't they just try to escape? Like, they might as well, right? I don't know. What's the boomerang guy supposed to do? Practically nothing. Is there going to be some contrived problem that only throwing a boomerang can solve? No. What kind of mission were you thinking of sending them on? To save me. Wait, what? What are you in danger from? Enchantress. Who's Enchantress? She's part of my suicide squad. She escaped. Oh my god! What was her power? She had the powers of an ancient evil goddess. So how are you going to fight her with, what, a crocodile? A guy who can climb things? Oh, he's not on the squad anymore. Why? He tried to escape. I had to explode his head. Oh my god. Why is it okay for you to do that? These are dangerous criminals. What was he even in for? I, I don't remember him. Did you do a thing on him when you read the files on all the others? No. How are we possibly going to spin this? Like, publicity-wise? Well, it's a top-secret operation. I'm going to shoot all my staff so they don't talk. What? That's terrible! Also, like, what if any of them try to run or fight back? Like, it sounds impossible to pull off. I'm an incredibly good shot. I have amazing speed and precision. I can do it perfectly on my first try. What, just like Deadshot? It is very similar. If these villains are so dangerous that it's okay to blow up their heads, why haven't they just already been executed? Especially since they keep escaping every time Batman puts them away. I need them for my squad. If Superman tries to kill the president, who's going to stop him? I don't know. A criminal with a sword? Katana's not a criminal. Then why is she in the squad? She's good at fighting. Okay, if you can get on the squad by being a good fighter, then why are there any villains on the squad? What do you mean? Well, there are all these incredibly famous people running around with superpowers. And you even said earlier you were in contact with Batman. So why don't you just put together a team of good guys who are powerful and also not dangerous criminals? Oh my god. Suicide Squad. Rated PG-13. Experience it in IMAX 3D. The shit that they've been uh, employed to do here, Operation Starfish, what they're actually here for, you're like, I could understand why they'd want to not really let this one up on the radar. Mm. Yeah. And they'd want to be able to kill everybody involved in this uh, just in case. Yeah, it's plausible deniability. It's yeah. if something goes south, we can cut you loose and say it was you, and because you're a bad guy, everybody will believe us. Bingo. Absolute deniability. But yeah, the the opening scenario, you, you start with Michael Rooker, and he begins in solitary, and then a little yellow bird lands in the corner, and he's bouncing a rubber ball around this little square of, of uh, brick. And then he ain't, he bounces his ball around and it, it hits the bird and kills the bird. And you're like, oh. So he like throws balls with great efficiency or something. And then when he's actually on the beach, it's a total pig fuck. Almost the entire party gets wiped out in seconds. He panics, swims away. Amanda Waller blows his head up and a little yellow bird eats his neck meats. And his blood spells out Warner Brothers Presents. That's our establishment of concept, as well as our establishment of tone. And it seems to be saying, don't get pally with any of these characters, because any of them could die at any minute. And it then proceeds to keep the entire B-team alive the whole way through until the very end. So weirdly, the prologue is actually somewhat misleading. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's absolutely fine to have unreliable narrators. But my response to Game of Thrones many years ago, when the philosophy of that show was no one is safe, no one has plot armor, good people are horribly killed, bad people survive and gloat. In fact, they thrive in this horrible, horrible, unfair world. Justice exists only as an abstract concept. Boo-hoo. 
my response, and I'm in the minority here, was, okay, I'm just going to pull out, just going to go away and, and never watch this again because I don't want to invest in people who are killed for shock value. That simple. As it turns out, that was probably for the best because I didn't end up as horribly disappointed as everybody who genuinely invested in the world and thought that there was a an end point to this, a satisfying conclusion to that version of the world. There wasn't, there isn't, the showrunners didn't have it in them, and Giorgio R. Martin doesn't have it in him. I'll gladly eat my words the day he publishes the seventh and final book. But anyway, back to our beach and Alpha Squad getting slaughtered. Among this first wave, we've got uh, Rick Flagg and Harley Quinn, both of whom fortunately survive this snafu. And Quinn is one of my points of contention in this film. I love Margot Robbie still. She was the best part of the original David Ayer film. But in a similar way to the fashion that the Lego Movie Part 2 seems to abandon all the progress and growth that Lego Batman made in between times during the Lego Batman movie, this one seems to kind of ignore the growth that Harley Quinn went on in Birds of Prey. She was on an arc whereby she realized that she was being an asshole. She was behaving badly and hurting people. And she was kind of on a road away from that. Introspection, self-possession, and lest we forget, emancipation from a toxic male influence, which does get referenced in this, fortunately. And for Harley, a newfound reliance on other women. Birds of Prey is my favorite of the DC movies released so far. But if you look at her in 2021's The Suicide Squad, that 2020 film may as well not have happened. There's actually quite a few parallels with the Lego movies insofar as Lego Batman and Harley Quinn are standout characters in a loose trilogy that's technically not really about them, at least not in its entirety. But like I said, as well as Harley, Rick Flagg returns. And um, he's a little looser this this time. He's, he's a bit less of a, a golden boy. And he, I actually wondered, you know, there's no other soldiers this time. Has Rick Flagg committed a crime that we don't know about? Because... Well, they, Katana clearly no longer has his back. <laughs> yeah, they, they never mention it. But like I say, everyone involved in this thing seems to be a criminal. And Rick Flagg is the only one who seems to stand out as not a criminal. There's a character called Mongal in this first team who is the illegitimate daughter of Mongol a Thanos-level alien warlord. So I truly expect there to be Taskmaster levels of angry, you wasted Mongal videos out there. Or, you know, maybe that won't happen. It didn't happen for Shatterstar. But then, of course, Shatterstar was amusingly killed off in a film that was all about a dude. Fun. Made for by sure. a dude, written by a dude, imagined by a dude, directed by a dude, custom designed by another dude, <laughs> music made by a donkey. <laughs> uh, the detachable kid is there, and uh, he gets, that's Nathan Fillion, gets to do his, what feels like a guy who's 22 years late for Mystery Men shtick. And I like Mystery Men. Like, again, Nathan Fillion is one of those walking, well, this is a stupid power scenarios. Again, it feels like the Lego Batman movie in, in that the, they sort of, like, took these characters and went, look, March Harriet, she's a woman who thinks she's a hair. Your city is under attack by Gotham's greatest criminal mind, including the Riddler, <laughs> Carecrow, Pizza Delivery, Bane, Hello, Two-Face. We need that door open, baby. 
Penguin, Crazy Quilt, Eraser, Polka Dot Man, Mine, Tarantula, King Cut, Orca, Killer Moth, Orange Harriet, Zodiac Master, Gentleman Ghost, Clock King, Calendar Man, Kite Man, Cat Man, Zebra Man, and the Condiment King. Okay, are you making some of those up? Nope, they're all real. Probably worth the Google. And Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn is witness to a lot of these convicts with daft or ill-defined powers dying horribly, suddenly, messily, screaming like a pig in a war. But it seems not to ruffle her. Death doesn't mean anything to her, because she's crazy! And again, this feels like a step back after the resolution of Birds of Prey. But let's flash back to a few days earlier and get introduced to B-Squad, Bravo Team. So Bloodsport also has a daughter, this is Idris Elba again, we're back in prison, uh, and she uh, is uh, maybe going to go to prison herself for uh, uh, stealing a, a watch television thing. And he shouts and argues with her, and they are really dysfunctional compared with uh, um, Deadshot and his daughter. I think she's disgusted with him because he is angry that she got caught, not that she committed a crime. Ultimately, she's looking at to him for, to give her some sort of moral standing point, and to her, he's this moral vacuum. And, and so they, they scream, fuck you, at each other. And it's like, oh, God, Yondu was a better father, even with the threat of being eaten by pirates. But then Walla implies that she's going to have this girl sent to Belrev in particular, and then laments the fact that Belrev has a really uh, high mortality rate for girls like her. And it's just, ugh. Like, Walla is horrible from the fucking jump in this. Bloodsport's like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll fucking do your Suicide Squad, whatever. There's also a character called Peacemaker, uh, played by John Cena. I expected him to be killed really quickly. He is in almost this whole movie. Not only that, but he has a TV series on the way, just about this character. I was also expecting him to be really funny, and he does say funny things, but I didn't laugh. I think it's because he's he was directly asked by James Gunn to play a kind of a bro-y, douchey Captain America. And I'm always put on edge when I see people who are obvious analogues for Captain America because it feels like a deliberate misinterpretation of Chris Evans' version of Steve Rogers. Like, it's, it's weirdly casting aspersions on someone who absolutely is not like that. Um, but it's there have been very valid... Uh, twisted takes on Captain America for decades now. So it's not new. It just, it, it often feels like um, because he, as Cap uh, Captain America, kind of summed up Marvel and Marvel's intentions with the MCU, more so than Spider-Man, who was up until the MCU started, like Marvel's flagship character. Then it was Iron Man, and Iron Man was the flair of the MCU. He was the, he was the humor and the character, but Steve was always the heart. And now, without him, I uh, I feel like I'm grasping at straws, trying to hope that the Marvel Cinematic Universe comes back together and recoalesces after this, we've been left to the wind. So, obviously, whenever I see a douchey Captain America analogue, like there's a, one of them in The Boys, it always feels like a condemnation of even the ideals laid down. Like, Disney have done some rotten shit in their time. Ergo, their Captain America must be insincere. Research accurate, conclusion inaccurate. So anyway, super patriotic John Cena's Peacemaker can also fire guns really well. 
he gets sort of hyper. I'm noticing a pattern here. He gets hyper competitive with Bloodsport early on, uh, but then mentions that uh, he, you know, he he loves peace and uh, liberty, and he would kill any number of men, women, and children to maintain it. And that's just an automatic, like, oh god, this guy's terrible. And that's hair star. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and uh, obviously D- James Gunn disapproves of this character and he's a fucking scumbag. But like, uh, in many ways, he and Flag and Bloodsport make a sort of trio trifecta in this film of men whose real skill is being a soldier. Same as back in the original Suicide Squad, there was a kind of a loose parallel between Rick Flagg's American Golden Boy and Deadshot's Mercenary. Now we have the Golden Boy, the Mercenary, and someone who actively seems to like killing, but uses the love of his country as an excuse. There isn't much textural density within this film, but one of the points is that Bloodsport is quietly bothered by his daughter's utter disapproval of him. And the other two represent two paths he can take. But interestingly, he and Peacemaker get into kind of a Hobbs and Shaw style competition fairly early on when they're infiltrating during the cold first and second acts. They're like competing to see who can kill people quicker and with more flair. We watched Hobbs and Shaw again after the dour F9 The Fast Saga featuring an extremely dour John Cena. And honestly, Hobbs and Shaw has climbed up my list of ranked Fast and Furious films. I do like the interplay between The Rock and Jason Statham. Elba and Cena have no chemistry whatsoever because they're acting on two different levels. Cena's a caricature and Elba's playing it totally straight. He's not even like, oh, I'm Black Superman from uh, Hobbs and Shaw. It's, it's, uh, it's more just like, oh, I'm fucking plow through this shit one more time. We got a King Shark. Not the soft-hearted, sweet little best buddy guy from uh, the Harley Quinn uh, animated show, unfortunately. Uh, He's voiced by Sylvester Stallone. Um, He's kind of Groot, and he's kind of Hulk, but he's very used to being savage, very used to just killing people and eating them and ripping them to pieces. You're kind of not sure where he's going as a character the whole way through, and he's barely verbal and just kind of lumbering around in the background. Nothing even approaching any of the moments of pathos that the Hulk has given us, even in Ang Lee's Hulk, and certainly not Groot. You should not expect a Guardians of the Galaxy. Most of what King Shark does is devour people bloodily, messily. Gets to do some some good gags. Again, most of the best ones were in the trailer, but again, 97% suggest that the critics were laughing. It is noteworthy. It wasn't just me not laughing. I had quite a big audience. They were not fidgeting. They were not talking. They were not not watching the film. They were engaged, but they also weren't laughing. Mm. So even though it is a black comedy, it functions as a military action thriller. And yet not one seemingly engaging enough to draw an audible reaction from my audience. Because honestly, it feels like if the tension was higher the need to laugh would have been higher. Mm, yeah, I know what you mean. I was going to say, could it be that it just it's not the kind of humour that appeals to a British audience, but you don't have a particularly stereotypically British sense of humour? No. No, in fact, like it should have been speaking my language, and for some reason I was one step removed, and I'm not quite sure why. It might be that I see it again, and suddenly I get it, and I laugh, and I love it. But it's, it feels quite thin. It feels quite empty. There isn't that much to love. 
Except there is a character called Ratcatcher 2 in this uh, film, played by uh, Daniela Melchior, and uh, she's from Portugal. She was described here, like, she's just in an afterthought in the cast list. Uh, like, the, it goes down this big, long list of every, all of these, you know, famous people and James Gunn's friends who have appeared in this film. And then she's just sort of there and is described as the heart of this film. She is absolutely the heart of this film because she is a decent, good person. She's young. She's kind of naive. She makes friends with the shark very early and says, you wouldn't eat your friends, would you? She's sleeping soundly and shark's sort of picking her up and is about to eat her like a fucking hoagie. And the fact that she's so trusting after this attempt on her life illustrates that she cares more about friendship than she does survival. And there's something really touching and sad about that. In this world in particular, we are far from Disney. This is a cold, cruel, cynical world. She is Ratcatcher 2 because her father was Ratcatcher 1. And this is something DC have done for a while now and Marvel followed suit acknowledge the heroes and indeed villains that came before and at least in the editorial side of things they number the generational legacy characters uh digger harkness was captain boomerang one owen mercer was captain boomerang two the son of the original hi uh i am pencil head and i am son of pencil head we erase uh, crime two generations of Right. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I think you like it. Her father's played by Taika Waititi in flashback. There's a bus sequence when they're driving um, from A to B, and she mentions growing up with her father. Idris Elba's Bloodsport is terrified of rats, and her power is with a little, um, you know, the PlayStation light wand thingies with the little blue with the balls on them. She's got one of them, and it controls rats, much like Ant Man controls ants. And Elba's uh, character was once locked in a box with a bunch of rats by his crazy father who trained him to kill people from the day he was born. I'm not sure how you train a newborn baby to kill people, but either way, it was uh, on his rap sheet. Uh, and who obviously was horrible to him. In fact, thinking about it, uh, had he been abused the way they're describing, killing from infancy, seeing human life as utterly disposable, he literally would not be able to muster the empathy requiring him to perform good actions in this film. His mechanism would have been broken. So I think they're exaggerating. But yeah, his father tortured him with rats. And so he's terrified of rats and thus terrified of her power. She freaks him out. And she has a little rat buddy, a little rat in a waistcoat. Uh, it's, it's basically Squirrel Girl with Hammy. They beat Marvel to that. But she talks about how her father, while addicted to smack, while they lived rough on the streets of Portugal, loved her and nurtured her and taught her to be kind. It's kind of like Danny the Champion of the World, only with rats instead of pheasants. They were sleeping rough on the streets and the rats were forming a living blanket around them. And it was just sort of lovely sweet flashbacks of the, this, this girl and her father who she loved so much. He was a thief and he ended up overdosing and leaving her alone. And she ended up trying to rob a bank and being thrown in Bell Rev as a, as a weird, uh, strange uh, Gotham-style criminal as a result. So this is why we can't simply reduce this to a squad of villains. There is no villainy in this girl. It was through her that I, f I began to sort of finally reach the parts of this film that James Gunn had actually contributed to that made it worthy of his 
attention. Mm, yeah. So it sounds like Bell Rev is a place that was set up for two types of people, hardened criminals and young women who've made a stupid choice. Yeah. Uh, there's also uh, David Dasht Malshian, uh, who was uh, part of Team Ant-Man. He's the sort of the Baba Yaga guy. Uh, he plays Polka Dot Man, uh, which was a uh, power that he shoots polka dots at people. And James Gunn went, well, that's a stupid power. We'll see if we can turn him into a tragic character. And his mother experimented on him and his siblings to try and turn them into superheroes. And she ended up giving them an interdimensional virus uh, which means that the polka dots that he fires kind of eat away at everything that he fires them at. So, like, when he fires them at people, they are devoured by these tiny piranha-type things, and it's a fucking terrifying power. But he has this kind of haunted, quiet, retiring air. There's a point where uh, Sean Gunn, who also played Weasel for that brief moment before he drowned, playing Calendar Man, although it wasn't said so until I found out later that that was him, um, says, why don't you come and entertain my kid at her birthday party? And what a normal scenario would be that the villain then does something terrible to this mouthy punk so, uh, so that he can show you how terrible he is. He doesn't. He doesn't want to hurt people. He only ever wanted to be a superhero. But to kill people, he has to envision them as his mother. So there's lots of overlaying uh, soldiers and um, other things later on with this phantom of a woman who can no longer hurt him literally, but is hurting him upstairs all the time. He gets like a build-up of this virus and has to dispel it, otherwise it eats him alive, kind of like Deadpool's cancer. Right. But there's a real pathos to him. And again, these two footnotes underneath all of the other characters are much more engaging because they're just kind of sweet, innocent victims of circumstance and of abuse. In the fleeting moments when it does actually feel a little bit like Guardians of the Galaxy, it's down to those two. And that is when the film was at its absolute best for me. They're closing the boxes for all of you so you can blend in. That said, the walking tiburon is going to have to stay out of sight. I wear disguise. Oh, you're going to wear a disguise. See? Hey, he's learning Spanish. And what kind of disguise? Fake mustache. Yeah, fake mustache isn't going to cut it, mate. You still look exactly like yourself. Worst fake mustache I've ever seen. And if you afford us, we'd have to kill you. Shark-shaped bloke with a mustache creeping up on us like that. In the meantime, this Corto Maltese island, Cuba-style place, has been subject to a military coup. Uh, do you remember General Medrano from Quantum of Solace? Yes. The one that Olga Kurilenko wants to kill? Yes. He's literally back, the actor, playing literally the same character as this evil... Castro-style villain. Would you like to play the same character in like, an alternate universe? Yeah. He and his handsome confidant have emplaced themselves as military leader and president. On the island is a laboratory testing facility called Jotunheim, which is weird to hear Idris Elba saying they've got to get to Jotunheim. But inside this facility is Starro the Conqueror. 
I recognise the name. Classic Justice League villain. I think he was the uh, thing that they, uh, like, the Justice League went up against him in their first ever team-up, mm. like pre-Avengers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, it's a big purple starfish that fires little starfish out of itself that attach themselves like facehuggers to people who become like zombies and mouthpieces for him. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. Well, uh, Peter Capaldi is torturing this thing and has been doing for 30 years. He's uh, the thinker, like experimenting on it to get to see if it can be used as a bioweapon and blah, 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 blah. And that's what they're here for. The coup has just fucked everything up. And that's why they've been sent in. And Harley gets brought to the new El Presidente. Well, he's going to be president, but he wants the people to love him, and thus he wants to have a bride by his side. And Harley, being a massive punk, represents the defiance of America. So marrying her would be symbolic in the narrative he wants to spin for the people. But he over the course of the day, um, starts to really fall for her. And so he shows her his birds and they go on a trip. It's like Prince Eric in The Little Mermaid. And he sort of shows her around the place and then they fuck. Like, she seems to be really starstruck by this as a, uh, a lifestyle. And then he stands looking out at Jotunheim uh, across the window and, and, and says that, you know, he will bring peace to this island and uh, he will kill as many men, women, and children as uh, possible to uh, make that happen. Echoing Peacemaker. And uh, then he turns around and Harley shoots him in the heart and says, I've told myself when I start to feel like I'm slipping into a relationship like this and I start to see red flags, I need to pay attention to them and do something about it and just kill the guy immediately. Because, you know, you, you ask me, Harley, why not just run away? The kinds of guys I fall for are not the kind of guys you run away from, because then they show up and they kill your dog and tell you that the music that you like is rubbish. Just the cruelty. These are direct quotes from Margot Robbie. She delivers it wonderfully while he's bleeding to death on the floor and gasping. And she says, you know, and just saying, I'll kill children, that's a red flag. And that's a wonderful moment because it does show she's moving on. Then the guards run in and start pointing guns at Harley. And she's like, well, I give, I give up, you know, fine, fuck it. She's noticed a repeating negative pattern in herself, and in the addressing of that, she has resolved to take tyrants out of the world, which I think is pretty healthy. It's not a moral decision for her. She's not going after tyrants. It's just that the kind of guys that are bad news for her probably should be dead. So her new way of moving forwards is... If she meets Joker, she'll kill him. I think she doesn't say that out loud, but you can tell from that that she, she's not just going to go, I'm just going to run away from him now. So, And I would dearly, dearly love to see Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn murder Jared Leto's Joker. I love it. Because he's the worst Joker. Everyone hates him. Put and it in a box, fill it with swords, set fire to it. <laughs> Not, because then he's Schrodinger's Joker. He might still survive. Put him in a clear box for the <laughs> Cut his fucking head off. <laughs> yeah. Kick it down the road. Seriously. You've got to make sure that fucker is dead. Guillotine. And doing that would ensure that the dark future definitely can't happen. Ah, good See? point. Because if he's dead, then none of that can be. Jared Leto's Joker must die. Conversely, I actually think it was the absence of Joker that hurt the Suicide Squad. It certainly seemed to hurt Birds of Prey. If you look at the three characters that DC have had success with, Batman, Superman, the Joker. 
The original 1989 Batman film did gangbusters better than Batman Returns. The Dark Knight did way better than Batman Begins. Suicide Squad did way better than The Suicide Squad. And Joker made a billion dollars. So frankly, I would expect there to be. There's rumblings of a Joker movie featuring multiple Jokers. So we'd see Jared Leto's Joker next to Joaquin Phoenix's Joker. Uh, Fuck it. See if you can get Jack Nicholson and Mark Hamill in there too. And that would make all the money. But it would appear that Harley being able to move beyond the Joker will not get you box office. The ramifications of that are decidedly disturbing. She's then tortured by General Medrano. In the meantime, the rest of the Suicide Squad are are coming to save her and liberate her from this place. Harley doesn't need saving. She kills the guy with her legs and then gets out. You know when I said that the series of action sequences in Birds of Prey that go, Harley invades the police station with her fun gun and shoots a bunch of cops with non-lethal rounds and glitter and then fights a bunch of uh, hoods in the cells while the sprinkler systems are going with, with like slow motion choreography and just really spectacular acrobatic moves. And then the Black Betty sequence where a bunch of wild hogs with submachine guns attack her in the uh, evidence warehouse and she fucks them all up with a baseball bat. It's She's got a baseball bat and whatever's to hand, and they've got submachine guns and she still wins. I love the odds on that one. I love the way that it's tilted because she's horrendously under-equipped. She shouldn't survive it, but she does. Also, they escalate it, not her. She comes in fully prepared to not have to kill anybody, but they escalate it. Well, in this, Harley gets out and acts somewhere between John Wick and Schwarzenegger in Commando. She just carves through... A battalion of soldiers like a hot knife through butter. Joker had better watch his back. It didn't feel authentic to her as a character, but it's a really weird point to complain about. An overpowered woman, so I'm not gonna. Again, it seems like she's disconnected. What I really missed was her narration. The narration in Birds of Prey is a masterstroke. It's... it's, there aren't many films that you can have constant. I, I hear this all the time. There aren't many films with narration that the audiences will will take. Personally, I really like narration. A lot of my books are narration, narrated from the first person, accounting for a scenario. So, a film that has that as a framing device, I'm going to take to a lot more than most people. Fight Club, Clockwork Orange, Birds of Prey, excellent examples of uh, where a a first-person voiceover will bring you into the character. Get Even if it's a, an unreliable narrator from their point of view. Iron Man 3 should have had that throughout, rather than just at the beginning and the end. And lest we forget, Deadpool, who, like Harley, uses humour to deal with trauma and relates to us knowing who they are. That's how Birds of Prey really engaged me. But this Harley's at a slight distance now. She's sort of running around the place. She has this psychotic disregard for life, which obviously she did in Birds of Prey as well. And obviously she has done since her very first appearance on Batman the Animated Series, which we're talking about next week. And I know Margot Robbie has invested in this character. I know she cares about being Harley. And I can't help but feel frustrated that it seems like she was climbing a mountain and has slipped back down. And once again... This could all change in time. 
You asked me what I thought of Thor in 2016, I'd say kind of a missed opportunity. And then Ragnarok, and then Infinity War, and then Endgame, and then Love and Thunder. Here's the thing, Romy baby. Your protection is based on the fact that people are scared of you. Just like they're scared of Mr. J. But I'm the one they should be scared of. Not you, not Mr. J. Because I'm hardly fucking quit. And yet, from what I'm hearing about how this film was made, that Harley was characterised even this much was down to Margot Robbie's clout as a producer. So I guess we should be grateful she's at least still moving in the right direction. Okay, so now we get to the third act. And they get to the uh, Jotunheim, and they get the Thinker, and then they get to see Starro, and then the horrendous experiments that have gone on on people. People have been cut in half, and they have Starro's attached to their faces, so they're still alive somehow. They're kind of zombies underneath that. The Thinker points out very specifically that they're, um, you know, criminals, prisoners of war, dissidents, journalists... And around about this point, the average audience will start to get uncomfortable because it's it's like, well, this is a, a, a banana republic where they, they do that shit to journalists. But then it's like, they've, he's very overt with the way that he says journalists. And it's like, it deliberately draws a line to the anti-journalistic way that the White House was combating the press throughout the time when McDonald Trump was president. Mm-hmm. And then they drop the bomb, which is that America were involved in this as well. And the Suicide Squad are here to destroy all evidence that uh, this place ever existed and that America were part of it. Because if such a thing comes to light as a result of this new military coup, it opens wide the culpability that America has had in tyranny, specifically overseas tyranny. The perception that America is just the 50 United States is erroneous. There are so many military bases around the globe that America polka dots the planet. This is not a point made in the film. It's just a matter of perspective. America sets the tone for the world because it's everywhere. And those in charge would rather that the filthy shit that they do behind closed doors did not come to light. And Flag decides, no, fuck this. He like This is the time when Flag just, I can't be doing any more of this. Uh, for a long time, they have been disconnected from, uh, appropriately and conveniently disconnected from Amanda Waller and her team. Her team, I haven't mentioned this before, very much resemble the folks in The Cabin in the Woods. And I actually can't say much more than that because I don't want to spoil The Cabin in the Woods, but everyone who's seen The Cabin in the Woods will get what I'm talking about with that. And I don't know if these are the replacements for the ones that Amanda Waller shot in the original Suicide Squad or whether that was just a different branch. But these are the handlers of Suicide Squad who are literally placing bets on who's going to live and who's going to die. They seem emotionally disconnected from proceedings themselves. But Flag doesn't want to do this anymore. He, he grabs a hard drive and, and pockets it and says, I'm taking this back and we're going to get this out to people. And Peacemaker, John Cena, uh, says, nah, you stop right where you are. And they have a massive fight that gets long and drawn out and both nearly kill each other. And then Peacemaker wins and kills Rick Flag. And again, this is why I felt sad and sorry for him because Katana wasn't there to watch his back. And it feels like it's a sad little death. 
as the whole building's sort of crumbling around them. And Peacemaker kills a brave man with a mechanical coldness. And this is why I'm not especially interested in the idea of a Peacemaker TV show. He's just Brock Rumlow. He's Crossbones from Captain America the Winter Soldier, only he speaks in a jingoistic fashion. John Walker was a much more human portrait of a man cracking under pressure. I still think Walker's redemption arc was way too rushed. They cram that into one episode, and there is the risk that the character could become almost cartoonish now. But yeah, back to the building as it's crumbling, Starro's getting out, uh, the thinker gets turned into a paste, and Capaldi gives this mad scientist a, a real venom. However, ultimately, he suffers from the same disposable characterization as almost everybody else in this production. And to Cena's credit, after playing the Boy Scout himself in wrestling for years, even though he came from a character who was basically just a mean rapper, he musters a cold, glowering malice as Peacemaker, which marks him out as one of the more developed characters. I mean, if you're going to shoulder a TV show, you kind of better be. Ratcatcher witnesses this murder among two of her colleagues and is genuinely shocked, courageously grabs the hard drive herself. Peacemaker pursues her like a Terminator and continues to be exactly what Amanda Waller wants from him, which is just a tool, just someone who will do as he's told and be told that what he's doing will help the liberty and freedom of everyone. Ultimately, Amanda Waller is in control and she doesn't give a fuck. Starro the Conqueror breaks out, thrashes his way through this city, tearing down buildings in broad daylight, and throwing out starfish under the faces of all of the innocent, horrified bystanders, so effectively takes over the entire population, claiming dominion over the entire island, for starters. Peacemaker is defeated with the power of bullets, and then the Suicide Squad are told by Amanda Waller, now leave, go home, we've got the evidence that America was part of this, this whole building has been destroyed, Starro's gonna go crazy on this island, and he'll fuck this place up, but that's fine, we'll just nuke him with uh, warheads or something. Bloodsport and company see that there are loads of people who are going to die as a result of this, and... Despite Waller's furious protestations and orders to the contrary, he turns around and starts walking back to actually save the people. And then each of them, like Ratcatcher goes after him, and each of them in turn, including Harley, go back to actually do the right thing and, and save the people. And Waller, like, is screaming, no, you're fucking dead, and And gets clocked by her own team, who knock her the fuck out. And this was a deliberate inversion of Avengers, where it's... Director Fury, the Council has made a decision. I recognize the Council has made a decision, but given that it's a stupid-ass decision, I've elected to ignore it. This is why she's the opposite of Nick Fury. She's telling them, turn a blind eye to this, go home. And her team are the ones who actually realize there's children and innocent people here far too much of a death toll that we, we could just sit by and let it happen, or we can allow the Suicide Squad to at least try to do something about it, even if it's at the uh, risk of America being named as somewhat culpable in uh, the unleashing of Starro. So, weirdly, this film actually ends up as kind of a, a strange Avengers, because the first act sort of sets it up, then the second act is them bitching at each other, and then the third act is them deciding to sort of come together and, and save the people. But that's actually now the fourth act. Or the third act divides very neatly between Jotunheim and everything that happens with Starro afterwards. 
Because then you've got a much shorter Battle of New York, but it's on Corto Maltese, and it's it's them trying to use their abilities to uh, to do the right thing and save the day, and the rats get employed at long last in a way that uh, is is kind of glorious. Bloodsport gets to doing what they do. He is shown on TV being heroic, and his daughter says, "That's my dad," and realizes he's not a moral vacuum, and that he did stay behind to do the right thing. And Harley. Harley is there, and that is it. They're described uh, by James Gunn as Abbott and Costello, and I'm like, Harley and Bloodsport don't even really meet each other until Act 3, and then they're not really in the same place for most of it. And again, Idris Elba is acting in a different film to Margot Robbie. Um, If anything, Bloodsport has much more of a rapport with Ratcatcher, and... The fact that she talks with such fondness about her father that she loved and she wishes that he was loved the way that she was, that touches him and gets to him in a way that, uh, again, Elba's got this incredible, subtle way of sort of showing when he's been gotten to. And then suddenly that kind of gets abandoned and, and he's with Harley. But Harley's not on a growth path at all. Like she's, again, like I said, weirdly detached from the loss of human lives and kind of just there as a crazy wild card. There are some superficial but not insubstantial similarities with the original Suicide Squad. They are once again being sent in to deal with the dirty laundry that Amanda Waller is involved with, as she is elevated here to symbolise the American government's shameful secrets. This time it's Starro the Conqueror, but back in 2016 it was an ancient Sumerian goddess she was trying to make work for her. It's the same thing, but a lot less personal. Just because they didn't really capitalise on the fact that Rick Flagg and June Moon had a romantic relationship doesn't mean there wasn't potential there for a richer storyline. Also of note, in both stories, Harley Quinn is presented with a false idyllic lifestyle of glamorous domesticity. In 2016, she imagines herself as Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors, married to Jared Leto's Joker somewhere that's green, like his hair. And here she's offered, effectively, you can be Evita if you want. Be Ava Peron for this country. But in both scenarios, she smells a rat and reacts with violence. But in neither scenario did it really feel like this was something Harley would actually want. So as a remake, The Suicide Squad is really pretty great in terms of taking the original premise, cleaning it up, clearing away all the shit, and just focusing on what the comic could be. And I'm seeing videos pop up in my feeds claiming that this is one of the greatest comic book movies ever. And I cannot fathom that. We're, we're looking for completely different things in our movies. This has the baseline for an action comedy. It has some impressive action, often obscured by murky lighting. It brings very little that's brand new to the table, but the elements that it does bring, it handles deftly. James Gunn knows what he's doing, and he's clearly delivered a crowd-pleaser. There's an irreverence to superheroes and comic books in this, which is not at all uncommon to comic book sci-fi media. That it exists in self-parody is delivered with a clout. It has teeth, and it has a faintly beating heart. 
but the connection to both is anemic and strangled. If that's one of the greatest comic book adaptations ever, I want to know what I've been watching and loving the past 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I can think of two that surpassed the Suicide Squad in every way, aside from gore and swearing, by the same director. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. And this show, School of Movies, which has covered so many of those films that we love, is kept alive and powered by Patreon. Once again, a big thank you and a big shout out to our top tier sponsors. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Another film The Suicide Squad reminds me of is The Losers. In it, an elite black ops team are told to ignore the imminent deaths of innocents by their higher-uppers and they decide to do the decent thing and save human lives and are branded as criminals. Idris Elba, Chris Evans, Zoe Saldana, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Oscar Geneda, and Columbus Short star in this enjoyable 2010 adaptation from the Andy Diggle and Jock Vertigo comic book based very loosely on the 1970s DC comic series of the same name, but set in World War II. But when The Losers movie was released in 2010, this was filmed just before Saldana became a megastar in 2009 with Star Trek and Avatar, and released a year before Chris Evans went from being Johnny Storm to being Steve Rogers. Completely ignored. The Losers cost $25 million and it made $29 million. upon the door you have sent the maid home early like a thousand times before like the castle in his corner in a medieval game I foresee terrible trouble and I stay here just the same I'm a fool to do your dirty work Oh yeah, I don't want to do your dirty work no more, I'm a fool to do your dirty work, oh yeah. One more note I want to add is about the uh, actor who plays Abner Krill, the polka dot man, David Dasmalkian. 
James Gunn didn't realise when he sent this gentleman the part and the script, but uh, David has always suffered from something called vitiligo, an autoimmune disorder that causes a loss of pigment in polka dot-shaped areas on the skin. I'm reading this from The Hollywood Reporter. He spent his younger years riddled with self-doubt, feeling lost and self-loathing. He thought he was going to be a failure in life. He thought he was going to be a failure as a father. And this role really meant something to him. He connected with the character. And that comes off the screen. That's why I felt like this guy was kind of the core of the movie. When, when he says, I'm a superhero, it's like he's finally pushed past everything that was holding him back. And he's effectively defeated his mother and actually done a good thing. And then... The film kills him. The way he shouts, I'm a superhero, while standing in the street next to a big explosive thing, but in the background, you can see it coming. There's a kind of a big stomp, and Starro smashes him down and kills him. And just, uh, he is eliminated from the screen and the film. And it plays as a gag. It's that moment of feeling invincible, followed by sudden, comedic, explosive death. It's Boris at the end of Goldeneye. It's Eddie Marson at the end of Deadpool 2. We as an audience are amused to see hubris followed by downfall. But this isn't hubris. This is actually reaching a spot of triumphant self-realization followed by unceremonious death. Like the audience is supposed to go, ah, well, they did say it was a suicide squad. And it's like, well, no, that, that's actually where the film works in opposition to its strengths. That should have necessitated a rewrite. How about Abner Krill lives? I'm a superhero and he doesn't get killed. He just whispers it to himself in a close-up and then we carry on. I know you gotta have sudden unexpected death in a suicide squad, but this just seems like the biggest waste. And the fact that it's positioned as a gag and nobody mourns him. Like, it's not like the end of Pacific Rim. It's not Gamora, it's not Natasha, it's definitely not Tony Stark. It's a sad little death with a pacing that matches boom boom It was, in effect, the movie going, what are you, Idris Elba? You Margot Robbie? You John Cena, who gets his own TV show? No, you're a nobody. You are disposable. You are the Suicide Squad. We can afford to lose you. We can definitely afford not to mourn you. It's meta in an unfortunate capacity. Groot's self-sacrifice at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy? That's a moment in cinema, and it lasts. We felt that absence, we felt that significance. That's really what this should have been. Let's end on Folsom Prison Blues, because that is fairly wonderful Johnny Cash song, sung in front of hardened criminals. Next week, we cover Batman the Animated Series, Stone Cold Classic, and the birthplace of Harley Quinn. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Squads, squads out. out. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps rolling on down to San Antonio. When I was just a 
baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. There's rich folks eating from a fancy dining car They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars Well, I know I had it coming I know I can't be free But those people keep a moving And that's what tortures me From this prison If that railroad train was mine I bet I'd move it on A little farther down the line Far from Folsom Prison That's where I want to stay And I'd let that lonesome whistle Blow my blues away 